from UWM. It's Partners for Health, a podcast about health, research, and everything in between. Each episode on Partners for Health, you'll hear from two different researchers discussing what motivates them to do what they do and inform their research interests. Partners for Health is an initiative between the College of Nursing, the College of Health Sciences, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Recording facilities are made possible by the UWM Libraries here in fantastic Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome to Partners for Health. I'm Carrie Wade, Health Sciences Librarian, and one of your producers, alongside David Fraser from the Center for Urban Population Health. Together, we're hoping to bring you fascinating conversations between researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee who focus on health-related research topics. We hope that you find these conversations enlightening. This week's episode is a continuation of a conversation that we had from episode one between Dr. David J. Pate and Dr. Heidi Luft. I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that one first because things on this one will make more sense after you go back and listen to that one. I hope you enjoy their continued conversation. And just as a reminder of who we have at the table today, we have Dr. David J. Pate, who is a chair and associate professor of social work here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee where he also has affiliate positions in the Institute for Child and Family Well-Being, the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, and at the University Honors College. Furthermore, he has an associate professor position for the Institute for Research on Poverty at UW-Madison. He is an expert on low-income African-American men, fatherhood, and child support. He studies how black men are affected by the social welfare system and the challenges that impede their ability to attain economic security. His research projects involve the use of qualitative research methods to examine life course events for African-American men and boys. In conversation with David, we have Dr. Heidi Luft, who is an assistant professor at the College of Nursing here at UWM. Her research aims to achieve sexual health equity in oppressed and or resource-poor populations with a large focus on Latinx populations in the U.S. and abroad. The fundamental research question underlying her program is how do we promote safe and healthy relationships in ways that are effective, sustainable, and acceptable for individuals living in resource-poor settings within the U.S. and abroad? Her perspective supports anti-oppression approaches to promoting healthy sexual behaviors for individuals and has the potential to provide a sustainable public health impact. Once again, Heidi Luft and David J. Pate in conversation. Yeah, um, so I've got a couple of questions for you. I'm wondering where you look for your funding, but also I'm curious to learn more about your work and how you mentioned that you've been able to have effect on policy. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that I'm 
is kind of a new, really big interest of mine. So my funding is, once I got tenure, I have not had a year where I haven't gotten funding, which has been really strange. I never got funding prior to tenure. And like, in fact, the year I got tenure, I got three $50,000 grants that one year and with three different, and I, I, I definitely, I said to the three people who wanted me to be their partner in the grant, sure. I said to myself, they'll never get the money because I never get grants, but I'll be a good person <laughs> and say, sure, I'll be happy to help you out. And they all got funded. And so a lot of my money, to be honest, has come from UW-Madison okay. for the last couple of years through their uh, Wisconsin Partnership Grants Program, their WPP okay. program, um, where I do a lot of community work. So I do a lot of public service, what we call public service grants. Okay. Um, and I've done a lot of work trying to help programs to see how what they're doing um, can be clear through an evaluation or just through some kind of program that will, like, for example, I worked with a WIC clinic mm-hmm. in Racine, and they wanted to see how they could increase their father, father involvement in the WIC clinic. Okay. And I said, why don't we, for the next six months, just observe how many men come into your site? Because mm-hmm. they may be already here, which I, that was my hypothesis. I think yeah. they're already here. You just haven't ever noticed them. And we learned over six months that over 1,200 men that came through the doors, and they never even realized that those men were coming through with the partners and going into the rooms with the with them when the babies were there or holding the babies in the lobby. They mm-hmm. never, never saw the men as visible. And to the point now where I was able to help them write a report up with uh, two other people, and they get funding from the state to f- serve as men. Because the state realized that, oh, that would be great to be a place that we're more family-oriented, even though it's called mm-hmm. Women's Infants and Children, the data that I was able to get for them through the two students that hired who were through the SURF program. Um, they just sat in the clinics every day and this doc just wrote this kept count of who wow. was coming through the doors. That's what we so that's one way we changed. So they now have funding where they hired a social worker, a person in the community who was a father mm-hmm. to run the mail program. That's great. Uh, um, to the point where some other funding I've had, uh, some funding I got after uh, I was I, I've gotten a lot of private funding for some policy work I've done. Uh, through a center I founded many years ago. Mm-hmm. And the center I founded was doing some similar work, kind of related to my, my, my policy interests, but I was one of the few people in the country had identified a certain thing a policy was doing around incarcerating men who couldn't pay child support, particularly poor men. And people didn't know that people could be in jail and sit in jail and could, until they could pay, which is a contempt issue. There was a United States federal Supreme Court case that needed a researcher, and I was chosen to be the researcher. And um, the case went to the Supreme Court, and I was there when they argued it, and we won. And so now the federal law is that you can't put people in jail if they don't have the money. It has to be, they really have to be, it has to be proven that they don't, that they have the money and they're refusing to pay. And um, my colleague who did, who wrote the amicus brief for it, Tanya Brito, who's at the law school, was a law school professor on behalf of the Center for Family Policy and Practice, she and I wrote an NSF grant that was a grant looking at social sciences and law. So across mm-hmm. disciplines, we, we gave our each perspective on why we wanted to be funded, and we submitted an NSF grant, and our first NSF grant got funded. And then wow. we submitted another one, and that mm-hmm. got funded. <laughs> so I've, I've been going through this crazy kind of, if you if you want to get funded, just write it with me lately. All experience. right. Well, we should. You know, <laughs> so it's keep this but I'm not. Going. <laughs> so, so my funding has been NSF grant money, um, WPP money, um, private foundation money. I just got an, 
$67,000 grant from the Tommy Thompson Center looking at okay. issues around incarceration and morbidity and mortality and health care access. And I have some, I'm doing some work with people, again, from a WPP grant, which was a million-dollar grant. We're working with the Community Advocates, um, which is a local policy institute, um, and the, the PI for that is uh, Professor Topetsis, and I'm working with John Tamersky on that, and we're looking at how do you provide mental health and healthcare access as well as a job and looking, I'm doing the qualitative work, they're doing the quantitative work. I'm trying to launch tooling to document if people are given a job and access to all these benefits, but they're making less than Mm $25,000, what is the challenges to maintaining that or does a transitional job really provide you access to a better job? Um, uh, Which I have my own theories about, Mm -hmm. but we're just now starting to collect the data. And I just got a million dollar grant as a PI from WPP to work with a number of people in corrections okay. to look at people who have been or who are returning citizens. And I'm going to hire returning citizens to be my research assistants to, to document what are some of the issues they face in the city of Milwaukee that will not allow them to um, get what they need to be able to be fully functioning citizens of America. And what we're finding is that people don't really get continuity of care when they're coming out of the incarceration system, as well as there's a stigma that is attached to them. So their their employment is compromised, mm-hmm. and um, so and all and also even with our social welfare programs, if you've been incarcerated, you can't get food stamps if you have a felony of some type. Um, so there's certain things that penalize you, no matter even when you paid your debt to society. Yep. There's social there's certain policies that are in place that don't allow you to fully re-engage with, with, your, with the country. Do you know, um, are we like one of the only countries where that's the case, where you go in, you serve your time, and you come out and you have, you know, you're not a full citizen, you don't yeah. have all the rights? Yeah. Or is that the case in other countries? You no, know, I can't talk about all countries, but I know mm-hmm. we have one of the worst numbers around incarceration in the yes. world. Yeah. Um, and the one country that we in our program have looked at very closely is Austria. We have an Austrian trip that we do with our students that looks at criminal justice and social welfare services. And I remember being so um, intrigued by how they handled their the people who were defined as criminals or people who have done things that are, are considered naughty mm-hmm. that require you to be incarcerated. Right. Well, one, they don't have a life sentence in a place like Austria. In most countries, you don't have life. No one's in jail forever unless they really have some mental health issues mm-hmm. that, you know, might be best for everybody that this right. person's put away. Right. And they, the one thing about Austria, I remember, is people were finishing up their term mm-hmm. of sentence. They're given a key to walk in and out of jail and go to work. And they're allowed to wear street clothes. Wow. So you would. So when I went through the jail, it was hard to figure out who was the person who was going to be here for a while, and who was the person who was not going to be here, mm-hmm. um, because they just they still feel that people are have a humanity even if they made a mistake, and we don't tend to see that, and we tend to have racialized our correctional system, you know, because the number of people who are black and brown, um, and native who are incarcerated is is hard, and I just went to a talk on. Friday, a geography talk that talked about the whole idea of mass incarceration. And this professor said mass incarceration equals mass elimination. If you think about how, who is put away and why are they put away and what, what's the thinking behind that. So that's the work I do. That's the work I'm looking at. Um, I'm about to now to think about a theory I want to propose that's going to probably be, I don't know if it's going to be controversial, but mm-hmm. I feel that at this point in my career, might as well go out with a bang. That's what 10 years for. Yes, yeah, so they tell me. <laughs> 
um, because I do think that we are perp- we, with fines and fees that are charged to very poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll never be in a space where they will have any equity or or, or uh, wealth wealth equity mm-hmm. that will allow them to have their children in a better space. I just right. I just have not seen it, and we have policies that are purposely um, making their lives harder. And I think that's why across disciplines it's important for me that if someone wants to work with me and can handle what they're going to see, I'm happy to bring them along the journey because I, I don't hold back. And I just think that um, I, wish I, I wish I could learn to write more. I just don't, I'm not a person who's a, a, like a, a fissive writer who writes a lot. I would like to. That's why I'm also working more across disciplines because mm-hmm. there are people who like to write mm-hmm. more. <laughs> and I'm happy to work with them. But I can't, I'm not always the person who can initiate that yeah. because there's a lot I want to say. And mm-hmm. I just think that... Um, I, I appreciate opportunities like podcasts and yeah. newspaper articles I've been in or op-ed pieces I've written or um, whatever I've had a chance to do that allows me to go beyond the traditional way we think of academics, getting their scholarly work out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that um, I've appreciated, that we, we can be more of a public intellectual and not just be a right. book intellectual yes. Yes, or a paper intellectual. So that's where I've gotten my money from. I, just been, mm-hmm. I have been very, very fortunate. And I more recently have denied... People have asked three people this last month have asked me to write proposal with them, and I said no. I, I just don't have the one because I'm chair of my department, which you have to back down on some of your mm-hmm. research activity. And right. it just so happened when I got to be chair, all these grants came through, which I just again didn't expect to get. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a kind of a quagmire right now that right. I have all this work to do as chair, but also I have worked as I promised to people in the community mm-hmm. that I have to do as well. So it's working. I just don't get any sleep. Yes. <laughs> Sleep is for when you're dead, right? Yes. Say. <laughs> yes. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> I think sleep is really important. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's um that's really interesting. I am I'm so glad that we've had the opportunity to meet because mm. I have a million questions for you that would go beyond this podcast. Um yeah, no, I'm I'm just so glad. Um I'm so glad that you're researching this and I'm glad that it's coming to light, you know, because it's such a upsetting um, and real issue. You know, it's you can back up like all the things that you're talking about, these policy level, um, f- these policies or lack of policies mm. that are having not equal effects on different people based on race. And that's something that's gone on throughout history. And a lot of times we think that racism is in the past. Mm-hmm. The obvious, I think like the obvious racism, like the Ku Klux Klan and, <laughs> yeah. you know, that personally mediated racism type stuff. That's not maybe as, as common. I mean, maybe now it's resurging, yeah. but, um, the racism that exists today is what you're talking about. It's all this stuff that's kind of silent at the policy level that unless you really even know to look for it, you don't realize it's there. So I'm just glad that there are people like you and others who are bringing that to light so that we can be more educated and have conversations like this about it mm-hmm. so that we can then do something about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think also the work you're doing, though, is, and I'm assuming you're looking at the policy as well as to what allows people to have access to mm-hmm. stuff, things like condoms or abortion or birth control, stuff they would right. need. Because I just read an article recently, I thought, where they, our government was now going to deny federal funding for abortion. Yes. So, um, yeah, and, and we're back to abstinence only. Abstinence education. only. Yeah. 
How does that affect your work? Do you? I mean, I know those territories are Dominican Republic. It's a U.S. territory, correct? No, it's not. That's Puerto not, Rico is. Puerto, it's Puerto Rico. That's the right. The DR is its own country. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's see, learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting di- conversation to have with a Dominican and a Puerto Rican. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the Dominican <laughs> Republic is, is its own government and its own yeah. money, own own currency. Yes. Okay. But they are I, the policy there is fascinating because. Um, for a number of reasons. So in terms of my area with intimate partner violence, it was only in 1997 where it became punishable by law to like intimate partner violence, domestic violence became punishable by law only in 1997. And I want to say like 2003 is coming to mind somewhere around there. That's when femicide, gender-based killing of women became punishable by law. So it's very, um, I think that certainly there's so many things that play into intimate partner violence, right? Um, But there's also not been a lot of research on it, I think, because it wasn't recognized as an issue until really recently. Like, yeah, really recent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the other challenge with policy in the Dominican Republic is, I mean, from the very little that I know, but is there are some policies now put in place but they aren't carried out because of corruption. And um, that is something that I, I, you know, I don't know how you get past. And I I think, uh, you know, my theory is that a lot of that corruption has to do with, like, they have one of the biggest... um, It's like the gap between the rich and the poor. Mm-hmm. It's just really, Disparity. yeah. They have just a really, really large gap between the rich and the poor. And I think that has, I mean, you have been talking about poverty and it's, that's something else that I want to learn more about because mm-hmm. I sense that is a huge driver of a lot of the sexual health and mm-hmm. um, relationship struggles that we see in the Dominican Republic. Um, and there actually was an article that was published. Somebody was looking at intimate partner violence in the Dominican Republic. One of like the two articles that I found on this. Um, and she took a feminist perspective looking at intimate partner violence. And I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to explain this perfectly. But essentially what she found was that the reasons why um, women we're becoming victims of intimate partner violence depended on your socioeconomic status. Mm. So there was a theory of, um, so one of the theories was like, if you have more money, if you're employed and you have more money as a woman, you're more able to negotiate with your partner. Um, because your partner knows that you can leave the relationship if, you know, he does something that you don't like. And she also knows that she has options. And I'm pretty sure that was among the higher income women. And then under the lower income women, the theory that best explained women who were more at risk for intimate partner violence was the theory that was essentially like if a woman did something that made a man feel like his masculinity was threatened, then he was committing acts of violence Mm. to assert that masculinity again. So like the backlash of that. So 
socioeconomics has so much to do with everything mm-hmm. um, in health and, and so many other realms. But that's definitely, I mean, I, I think definitely a, a driver of what's going on in the DR with my area of work as well. So yeah. I'm curious to learn more about that from you at yeah. some point. Being that you're so new in your career, mm-hmm. what is your dream place to be 10 years from now? I know one is tenure, but beyond that. Right, beyond tenure. Um, I'd love to be doing, like, global health research. Um, and I'd like to be doing work that, kind of as you were alluding to, is controversial, <laughs> um, but really meaningful, mm-hmm. but things that a lot of people don't want to hear about and that could probably would prevent me from getting tenure if I worked on them now. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of those really, as my students have called them, raw, like, Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I really, I have this, I want to do something really meaningful with my career. Um, And I don't want it to be self-serving, which is what I think a lot of times it ends up being because of the pressures that are put on us as academics. You have to publish. You have to get big grants. Well, then the grants dictate what you're researching and and you're going after those grants and pushing those community partnerships because you want to, you know, you want to do something good. But in the end, it's really, it ends up being fairly self-serving. So I'd like to be able to do some really meaningful, grassroots, community-driven work mm-hmm. and bring like seriously anti-oppression work because that's another thing I think that through our research a lot of times we don't realize it when we're trying to um, empower or help communities that we consider disenfranchised or vulnerable if we aren't careful a lot of times we can end up oppressing them further mm-hmm. when we're just intending to yes. do good, but mm-hmm. we don't realize it. You know, like mm-hmm. I have had this conversation with community partners that I'm very close with now about how as researchers we come in and we ask them for all these resources and they give it to us because they feel like they have to. And then we give them like almost nothing in return, but exactly. a promise that someday this research will help your community mm-hmm. maybe Mm-hmm. hopefully yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> um, a, that's a so. big one because I'm always finding with my men um, because they are disenfranchised and sometimes their work is illegal mm-hmm. or they're doing things that I know from a policy perspective I report this in my paper that's, I think that's one of my fears why I don't write as much as I need to mm-hmm. because I know what I will write could harm them mm-hmm. you know it could be mm-hmm. they shouldn't be in this house because policy says if they're in this house and this mother will lose money for her benefit Right. Or they're in this house, or they're getting drug money to pay their whatever. Or they're, it's just it gets to be once you dig deep in there and you figure out, oh, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. You have to really decide how do you um, make sure everyone is safe. Myself is safe as well as they're safe, and I don't mean right. safe in terms of my safety that I'm gonna live, but safe in that it doesn't get out that he's just a snitch. He right. doesn't really right. tell. He's just telling stuff to, for his own benefit. And I just don't yes. want to do that. I just find that, um, and I don't want to further um, harm people. Like my, my, my motto was always, don't do any harm mm-hmm. to people that you decided. Or just say, or just make, don't make up something, of course. I'm not doing it either. Right. But you don't have to, you, there's ways of telling the story. 
mm-hmm. and being scientific in your work where you don't have to harm somebody. Right. Just for your own benefit. Um, but that's a, it's a difficult choice, particularly when you're qualitative, because I, I see everything. I'm, I'm there. I'm sitting with people. I get to know their kids. I know their moms, dads, right. everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, even when I did my research early on, two of my people I was studying got killed. And I had to figure out, going to a funeral and, you know, how do you handle that? And mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult. But I think being able to, I've done, I, even though I was tr- in a social work school, I was trained more as a sociologist. And okay. then um, just learning to work across disciplines is something I really have enjoyed. Because mm-hmm. I think you can get too um, vested in one way of thinking, yes. which is not helpful. Uh, and trying to figure out what's going on and trying to discover what the issue is. Right. In my opinion, I don't know. No, definitely. And I, I'm so excited that that's where I think research is heading. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of indications of that. Um, I think it's a relatively new phenomenon, though, right? Like when you were getting your PhD, they weren't really talking. It was still about becoming an independent scientist, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, so, but there's so much value, like undeniable value about... Mm-hmm. Um, taking an interdisciplinary perspective Mm -hmm. it's uh i mean i've only found benefits like yes it takes longer but like that's only bad when you're under a a time constraint that your department is placing on you because tenure has always been a six or seven year Mm -hmm. (laughs) time frame you know um but but yes uh, the interdisciplinary perspective is so so critical and I think that's the only way to solve these like wicked social problems that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so. a, it's funny too because even I, I was approached by engineers recently for to do a proposal NSF grant with them, and I was thinking, what can I do with engineers? But they were trying to figure out if you're in a, a poor neighborhood, what are some things they should be thinking about? Because all they were thinking about was the streets and how uh-huh. people, how cars went up and down the street and at stoplights, but. Is it something we should know about in poor neighborhoods? People are, why are they walking in the middle of the street? Or I'm like, we can ask them and do a quality of interviews and like, <laughs> yeah. find out. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> but it's just interesting that I would even get asked by someone who's in engineering to be part of a grant mm-hmm. um, because I would never saw that as something I would do. And I never yes. thought they would, be, they would care. But they do want to know what is it because they don't see the people. They just see their project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting way of thinking like, oh, there is something that I add that I didn't think I added. And I think sometimes it helps to have someone from outside another discipline recognize your value because I think often mm-hmm. you can just minimize what you're doing. It's, it's just me and no one cares, but yeah. so what? I have to still get motivated to do it. Right. But right. It, it does help sometimes when other people come up and say, oh, I want to work with you, and you didn't even know they were noticing what you were doing. Yeah. Which is good, which is what I'm sure you'll be in 10 years from now. So what drives your work? What drives you? What That's a really good question, you know, and I often think myself, why do I get up and do this every day? One, I just have to say, I wish I started this when I was much younger, and I I just absolutely love my job, and that motivates me because I love seeing that student in class who figures out, oh, that's like one student student this week said to me, I didn't realize until this class that taxes make the country run. I said, I said, where do you think the money comes from? How do you think we, I, I said, when people, so they said, now when people say no more taxes, I'm going to say I'm not voting for that person. <laughs> I said, well, that's what you learned. That's on you. I'm not trying to convince you one way or the other right. how to vote. But I think my job as a teacher is to educate you on how the world works from mm-hmm. a policy perspective. 
And it's those type of moments when you see those eyes light up mm-hmm. that I'm just so fascinated. And I'm a, I'm a weirdo. I love graduation. I go to graduation every time, even though it's a voluntary thing to do. <laughs> I just can't wait to see my students come off the stage and to give them a hug or to ring my cowbell. Because I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's one of those few moments where you are a star and it goes away, but you just want to be part of that celebration with them. Yeah. My research, the reason that my research drives me is that I have a son. And I worry about my black son being seen as a criminal just because he's black. Mm -hmm. And I have a daughter who's not being recognized for her worth as a black woman. So I do my work so I can at least put, my kids can see that you can be an Avenger in some kind of way, no matter what you do, and and recognize and uplift the magic of being a black person, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're poor or rich. And I also think it's important that as a black male, I'm very fortunate to be in this position. I'm not super smart. I'm just somebody who works really hard and have had some opportunities where I took advantage of them at the right time with the right stuff I had. Mm -hmm. But um, I take everything as a gift and not something that I am entitled to. And so I think it's important for me to um, figure out a way to always invoke the voice of black men who were marginalized Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that people understand they are good fathers. They, They do want to be involved with their children. Um, they just aren't often given the same opportunities that other people are given. And that we live in a world that's racist. That's mm-hmm. just the bottom line to me. And I, 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 I will not back down from that. Um, some people just have privilege, and it's privilege based in law. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, I think it's Birmingham, it's Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I went there this summer. And my wife's uncle was lynched uh, in eight, 1905, I think it was. And so we were able to see his name etched in this museum that's down, that just, just opened this year. And it just reminded me of uh, how people just don't value people's lives because they're black and they're male and it threatens you. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're black and female. And so I do the work for those people who also suffer at the hands of people who just because they didn't like the way they looked or how they looked at them. Um, and my and, I, and my mother-in-law likes to call having my mother when she was alive, and my mother-in-law loves calling me doctor. Mm-hmm. So I do it for them, and I don't get off on it. <laughs> I, just, I hate it to be honest. I don't ever want to be called doctor, but uh, except when you're in those meetings when you have to go through it, yes. you know, of course. But anyway, um, I do it because I really think it's something I have to do. I have no choice mm-hmm. because it, it, there's people who um, who never got this experience I have. And it's privilege. It's a privileged experience mm-hmm. to be a professor. It's just it very privileged, um, and I want to take full advantage of it and be sure that I take advantage of um, making sure someone's life is better than mine. Mm-hmm. That's what gets me yeah. to do the work. What gets you to do your work? So similar in the student effect, mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. Um, so yeah, I love I love teaching, and I I love finding ways to teach that students are open to because I think you know two people can teach the same topic and and the students can hear one teacher and they cannot hear the other just depending on how you're wrapping it like presenting it um and I on the flip side you know being a white woman I feel it's kind of my job to raise awareness among white people (laughs) of all of the racism and um, just really unjust things that are happening, not just, I mean, definitely in the U.S., but throughout the world, too. And finding, I mean, through my teaching anyway, finding ways to open their eyes without 
shutting them down, which sometimes is hard to do. But every time I teach my class, I think I learn new tactics for that. So I think since my work is with primarily the Latino community, it's all about being an ally and being a true ally, not like like neo-colonialism, like coming in and just being like, I am going to fix everything. Um, but really doing that community-driven work and finding out what people see as the issues and then letting them tell me how they think those issues need to be fixed and just using my privilege as a, you know, somebody who is versed in research methods to help kind of make that happen. Um, and also something new-ish, I mean, because I am so new, um, that's become a motivation is really trying to... So I think one of the issues that we have in higher education is just... Um, like students who are Latino or black minority students, they don't feel they have the support they need. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have a lot of role models. I'm not, a, you know, I'm obviously not a role model to them, but I can at least, Good. you know, well, I mean, not visually <laughs> is what I'm trying to say, but like, I'm trying to be a role model in like the not visual, like mm -hmm. by, you know, I have my surf student is a Latina, mm -hmm. um, a Latina woman and I really love working with her and I feel really dedicated to helping her learn and encouraging her and opening her eyes to new ideas so that we can fill that gap in like and get a more diverse um, faculty body and also I mean the more people that you can get through college that helps also with the economic injustices where people now have access to better jobs. Obviously that doesn't solve all the problems because there will always be implicit bias and racism and those types of things, but at least they now have, you know, some, um, uh, something to leverage mm -hmm. to, to have more opportunity. So that's something also that I've been really trying, uh, to advocate for during our staff meetings, you know, especially, and, and it's not just Latino students, but I know here at UW, we have a, a really um, unfortunate problem with attrition of black male students. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to figure out, you know, advocating for, <laughs> for not just health equity or health justice, but educational equity and educational justice, um, because it's not the same as equality. And I think our systems in education are about equality for, I mean, some good reasons. It's just easier that way. And, um, but, you know, I think those are some of the things that really motivate me. Um, and obviously self-growth, <laughs> not just professionally, but I think working with communities that are not like you, if you're doing it the right way, your life is a constant state of critical self-reflection mm -hmm. and growth. Um, and being able to share those experiences of critical self-reflection and, you know, the messy process that that is and upsetting process that that can be when you've realized that you've been doing something that's not very nice. Um, sharing, being vulnerable with my students and sharing those experiences with them um, 
to kind of inspire them to also go through that process. And, and I mean, certainly among white students, but all of us have Mm -hmm. biases and, um, some level of prejudice against different groups. So, Mm -hmm. um, kind of being that example through my work. Well, we have we have a lot of work still to do, but yes, it's great we that do. You're out there <laughs> yeah, to see that you have that interest, and I'm looking forward to seeing your career. I yeah, really yes. Yeah, so, thank you for the t- uh, taking this time with me. Yeah, it's been really wonderful getting to know you more. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and thanks to all of our listeners who have tuned in for the first episode or two of Partners for Health. Many thanks to David and Heidi for being our experimental test group as interviewers and interviewees in the initial two episodes of Partners for Health. I'd also like to offer a sincere thank you to my co-producer, David Fraser from the Center for Urban Population Health. We will be bringing you more fascinating conversations between health sciences researchers very soon. Partners for Health is an initiative between the College of Health Sciences the College of Nursing, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Recording facilities provided by UWM Libraries here in beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thank you for listening.